today I want to talk to you about influence at the intersection of darkness and leadership. It's a very strange message. Um, and as I was thinking about what influence looks like and how we, we think about influence today, I want to create a paradox for you of influence in the world and how we view influence in the world and the kingdom mindset of influence. Because you know the economy of heaven is opposite the economy of the world. So I want to talk about these two things. And influence in terms of the world's mindset is the power to shape policy or ensure favorable treatment, justice, and peace through status, contacts, and wealth. So when I think about influence in this way, I've done a really great job in terms of getting influence. So I, I look at this and I think about how God has brought me out of darkness in my life, how he's brought me into the light and he's established me as his daughter. And do you know that we go through multiple valleys of darkness in our life? We have multiple seasons where we need God to walk alongside us and show us his light over and over again so that we can see how amazing he is and how much he loves us. And so I had an amazing revelation of this. I love Jesus. I love the word of God. I love the word of God like it is my best friend. And sometimes we love the word of God and we love Jesus and we think, all right, I'm going to do something amazing for God. I'm going to do something really great. Okay? And so I really, at a young age, I wanted to do great things for God. And what I found was, as a young woman with a somewhat outgoing personality that I found that I walked through lots of seasons of darkness with the people of God. Have any of you ever experienced that? Where you're in a church and somebody says something and you're like, I don't, I don't know if that's really who I am or I'm not sure that's really God. And what I ended up finding at the age of 18, okay, 20, at the age of 20, I was assigned my first platoon in the United States Army. So I was a cadet at the time, so I was a platoon leader in training, and I had a platoon of 60 males who would follow me into battle and would follow my every order and command at the cost of court-martial, okay? So I had all of this influence, right? I could create all kinds of environments for these 60 troops, but I had no voice at all in the church. So to me, at that point in time, I said, okay, God, if I'm going to do something amazing for you, it'll be with the lost people because I can have an influence with them. And maybe, maybe I can't actually have an influence with the people of God. Maybe as a woman, it's easier for me to be in leadership in the world. And I'll just love you and I'll serve you and it'll be great. And then I married an awesome man who loves me and supports me. And um, I was able to go get my PhD and be a professor and do all these great things. And three years ago, we had this amazing life in Florida. I was at a top 50 business school. I had lots of influence. I could bring leaders and executives from companies from around the world, mainly for SEC football, but also to talk to me about business. And I thought I was doing really great. And two and a half years ago, a lady came into our church a very prophetic traveling um, ministry, and she brought a prophetic word. 
that she had had. And have you ever had a prophetic word that somebody spoke and then it sticks with you and it sticks with you and you're like, surely there's like a new prophetic word for today, right? We can't just prophesy the same prophetic word every Sunday. Wouldn't that be weird if I got up every Sunday and brought the same prophetic word? Do you know that's what Isaiah did for 20 years? And so this word she spoke about, she had this picture and her and her husband and some different leaders were standing in a huge arena and they were praying and they were crying out to God and all of a sudden her husband and one of the other leaders stood up and they held in their hands a linen cloth and they started waving a linen cloth and the people in the stand started waving a linen cloth and she looked to Revelation 19 and Revelation 19 is our future. This is our future. And Revelation 19 says, And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne. They were saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice, O earth, and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright, and pure, for fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So let me unpack that for a second as I go into influence from there. Linen was what servants wore. The bride of Christ will be clothed in servanthood. When Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he wrapped linen around his waist. The king of kings who laid down his crown, laid down his glory, clothed himself in servanthood. And something about this, something about this just captured my heart. And I serve. I, I teach epic. I was, I'm happy to, te- you know, to, do, to do nursery. Um, I, you know, we make people meals. We have people into our home. And I was like, God, the bride of Christ, majestic, meeting Jesus and clothed in servanthood. What does this look like? What does this really look like? And my dad always said that if God has given you something, if you have a ministry that's from God and you can't lay it down, it's yours. It's not God's. So I looked at my amazing influence that I had acquired. And of course, you know from my past, I had made my decision that my influence was going to be in the world because the world was ready to receive me. And who knows, women in the church and stuff, it's weird. And so um, I was, this is where I was going to have my influence. And God started reminding me there was this position that had been open for three years at a conservative Christian school, not business accredited, not a top 50 program, weird place to be as a business professor. And God started speaking to me, do you really love my people? Do you really want to be a servant? Do you, do you really? And so three years ago, Rich and I decided that we were going to take the leap. And we were going to trust that if God had called us to influence, it was going to be his influence and not something that we built. 
And so I look at this, and God started to develop a heart of this in his people from the very beginning. That we would look at our journey through life, and I think it's a cycle. So I'm going to make three points today, and I'm going to make them eight times. That we are on a cycle. We are on a journey from darkness. We go through darkness. We see his light. He walks with us. He brings us into the light, and he crowns us over and over and over again. He says, that hurt, didn't it? But you felt my love. You felt my love. You saw how I stayed with you. And now I'm going to crown you as my son, as my daughter. And then the best part, and this is the part we don't always get to, we get to lay it down for him and say, you know what? I love this crown. How can I serve you? How can I serve you? So we see this first. Are you willing to go on a journey through the Bible with me? I'm going to jump from Old Testament to New Testament, back to Old Testament, um, just so you can see that this has been God's heart for each of us since the very beginning, when he called a people to himself. He wanted to, to bring us out of darkness, to crown us with royalty, so that we're not serving out of a place of destitute, that we're not serving because we can't get ahead. We're serving because we've chosen to lay down something royal. We've chosen to lay down something amazing and do something even more amazing in glorifying him. So in Exodus 19, verse 4 through 6, Moses says, You yourselves have seen, he says this of God, what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself out of slavery, into the promise. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He brought them out of darkness, out of slavery, on his wings, into the promised land, to set them apart as a treasured possession, a holy nation, a nation of priests. So you know the amazing thing about this holy nation, this royal nation that he sets apart in the earth? That priests in all of the nations of the world, so whether it was Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, priests were seen as the servants of God. And priests were the seen as the servants of God to men. So he's saying, I'm creating a royal people set apart to be my servant priest. We see this in Exodus. We see it again in Deuteronomy. In Joshua, how he calls his people to be set apart. We see it in First and Second Samuel as he sets in David, their first king. First and Second Chronicles and Esther. And all along the way, they're looking like I was for that status that was comparable to the nations around them for a leadership that had might and power and wealth like the nations around them instead of taking on the royalty he'd given him and like Genesis, becoming a blessing to all of the nations because they were made a royal people who could have changed the whole world. So we get to Isaiah. And Isaiah was the high priest and a prophet. So in the first 30 chapters of Isaiah, he knows and he's prophesying the devastation that's going to come from Assyria. But he's saying to them, the Davidic promise still stands. And he's proclaiming kingship. In Isaiah 32, he says, look, a righteous king is coming. And honest princes, that's us, will rule under him. Isaiah 9, 6, this is our Christmas verse. For unto us a child will be born, a son will be given, and government, kingship, 
will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Then Isaiah 11, 10 through 16 says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. This is so Davidic, right? David's dad was Jesse. He's saying there's going to be a, a king. A king is coming, and Israel's looking for that physical, natural king. And from his roots, a branch will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom, of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. This sounds like that definition of influence, doesn't it? In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. And the nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, Egypt, Cush, Elam, Babylon, Hamath, from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. So Isaiah 1 through 32, we see this very natural kingship, this promise of a man that's coming as the Messiah. And between Isaiah 30 and 35, Assyria comes and Jerusalem falls. So we have this king who's going to come and bring righteousness, justice, and peace. And all of a sudden, starting in Isaiah 40, there's a change. We move from a natural kingdom to the kingdom of heaven coming. We move from a physical temple to the temple of God being established in the hearts of men. And Isaiah says in chapter 42, Now behold my servant. The word king changes to servant. Behold my servant whom I am uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice for the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice or make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And then Isaiah 52 through 53, he says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been seen or told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to who has the arm of God been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot. So we see all that Isaiah is saying about natural kingship and the lineage of David and in the shoot of Jesse is now being fulfilled in this servant who's coming to establish justice. So if we think that the goal of influence is justice, righteousness, and peace, and the goal of leadership in the kingdom of heaven is to establish this, the world would say this comes from status, contacts, 
and wealth. So we get to 1 Peter 2.9. And 1 Peter 2.9 draws from Isaiah and how Peter portrays us as New Testament Christians today. And he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, the radiant, illuminating truth. We are now dispensers of spiritual light. Once you had no identity as a people, and now you are royal. Now you are a royal priesthood. You're royal servants. Um, once you had received no mercy, but now you have received God's mercy. And something happened in me that God over and over walks with me out of darkness and reestablishes me over and over in my life as his daughter, as a royal daughter, and then says, what are you going to do with this? Are you going to look like Jesus? Are you going to lay it down for the people around you? Are you going to lay it down for my people? And this is how we get, I think, to Revelation 19, a people clothed in servanthood. And all of that is really nice right? It's great. We love to see the pictures in Isaiah. We like to see the history of the Exodus and how God's heart for his people is to set them apart. But I want to know, as a business professor, what is the model for walking this out? I want a process model. How many of you like to have a process model for how this looks? See, the amazing thing is he gives us formulas sometimes in the Bible. And my new favorite book, I started a, a master's in biblical studies, not because of status, but because I love learning um, last year. And so I've been ingrained in the Old Testament and I have fallen in love with the book of Deuteronomy, which is really weird, but that's okay. As an as a academic, I get to be as weird as I want about geeky, nerdy things. So Deuteronomy 17 is this amazing picture of God's heart for kingship. How many of you ever heard that God didn't want, really want Israel to have a king? That he kind of like, eh, all right, you want a king because you want to be like all the nations around you. And he's like, eh, it's not really time yet. So you can have that guy Saul. He's going to mess it up royally. Then I'll bring David. David will seem great. He'll kind of mess up a bit too, but I'll love his heart. It's going to be amazing. But actually, Moses prophesied that Israel would have a king. And Moses prophesied not just that Israel would have a king, but what that king would look like. And only one king has ever actually looked like Deuteronomy 17, and that is King Jesus. And Deuteronomy 17 says, when you enter the land, so you're coming out of darkness, into the promise. When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, and you take possession of it and settle in it and say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your, chooses, Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not Israelite. So we see, we start off in this passage with coming out of darkness and into the promise, and God's saying, I'm going to establish for you what leadership should look like for my chosen nation, for my set-apart people. And then he goes on, to say all of the things that the world says are influence, but says, don't do them. He says, the king, moreover, must not acquire a great number of horses, which represents a military. What kind of king doesn't have an army? Especially back then when you got attacked all the time. 
So he must not acquire a number of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. So he's not supposed to go out marauding and collecting military things. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. And he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. What good is this king going to be? He's not going to have status in military might or wealth. What a weird kingship, right? So he's saying if he's not going to have status or wealth, maybe the provision for God's people is going to come from God himself. That our wealth and status is established, that all of heaven is at our calling and our identities are so hidden and an amazing righteousness and royalty that we can't ever fathom for ourselves anyway. So he goes on to verse 18 and says, when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and it is, he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere, to be in awe of the Lord, and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. He won't turn from the law to the left or to the right. He is actually describing a priest. This is what the priests did. They wrote down the law. They studied the law. They taught the people of Israel to be in awe of God. He's saying, I don't want you to have a king with status and wealth. I want you to have a leader, an influencer, who points all people to me. And then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel justice, peace, and righteousness. That's what flows from leadership and influence that has come out of darkness. It's been crowned royal and set apart as the people of God and then set into a place where their hearts are about turning all of the eyes of all of the world to God. This is kind of easy to do. I love Deuteronomy. It's so easy to apply once you get all of the weird sacrificing stuff. So we know that we have come out of the darkness and into the light, right? And it's so refreshing to not have to put our security in wealth or status. Instead, when we hide our hearts in his word, when we fix our eyes on him, everywhere we walk, the people, of God, or the people of the world look at us and say, who is this mighty person? This is how we establish influence. Out of darkness, we're carried on eagle's wings. We're made royal. We're made a servant priesthood. And thank goodness, Jesus picks up on this. Jesus loves to quote Deuteronomy and Isaiah. And so we hit Luke 22, 24 through 30, and his disciples are still living in Isaiah 1 through 30. They're still looking for that, like, root of Jesse to come up. Like, hey, Jesus, when are, when are you going to get your throne set up, you know? When are, when are you going to have um, your, your courtesans? Like, which, which one of us is going to sit closest to you, right? This is what the disciples are thinking. They're, they've read Isaiah. They know the promises of God. Maybe they didn't get to Isaiah 42. How many of us ever don't get to the end of the book? So a dispute arose among them as to which of them would become the greatest. Jesus said to them, 
The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, the one who rules like one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? In their culture, is it not the one sitting at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. So we see this. Jesus is teaching this to his disciples. What that Isaiah 42 through 66, kingdom of heaven, looks like. Because he might be the king, but he's the king of kings, which makes us kings. And so we have a responsibility to pick this up and say, okay, God, I'm going to saturate myself in your word. I'm going to be completely dependent on you for provision. I'm going to be completely dependent on you to give me the status I need because only one connection matters. We do need to be connected, and that connection comes from prayer and spending time in the word of God, and we are connected to the king of kings. And this isn't to say that wealth or status is wrong. In fact, God gave Solomon great wealth. Remember in 1 Kings 3, God was so pleased that Solomon asked for wisdom that he said, since you've asked for this and not for a long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but discernment and administering justice. That's his heart and leadership. Discernment, administering justice and peace and righteousness. I'll do what you asked. I'll make you wise and discerning. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, for wealth and status. God is so weird and awesome and amazing because he's taking the economy of the world and saying, I have something so much better. You don't have to strive. You don't have to work and work. I have worked so hard. And like my dad said, if I can't let it lay it down, then it's mine and it's not for him. We don't have to work and work and work. He says, I can give you wealth. I can give you status. Just focus your heart on me. And Solomon doesn't quite cut it. David doesn't quite cut it. And we have to, as we walk that out, wealth can sometimes, or status can sometimes become our security, and we forget. I recently forgot a little bit. I didn't think it. Um, Rich and I went and did Restoring the Foundations a couple weeks ago. It's awesome. Just going through and saying, let's like, clean out. Let's clean house. Let's make sure that you know, every decade we're moving forward with a clean house, focused on God. And I realized that in my independence, because of my past darkness in the church, that I have established in myself, nobody needs to recognize me. I'll just work. And then they'll recognize by the things that I've done, the status that I should have. Sounds very American, doesn't it? It's like the American dream. It's ingrained in us in grade school. We read all of the stories of the people who were nothing and then worked hard. And I am great at the American dream, but I want to be a great daughter of the King of Kings, which means that I cannot count anything to myself but my connection to him. Or my servanthood won't be worthy of the prince that's returning for his bride the king who's coming back for us. Um, I love it. In, in Luke 18, 24, this is where Jesus is talking to the, the rich young ruler. And we know this story pretty well. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't go around lying, honor your parents. And the rich young ruler said, all of these I've done since I was a little boy. 
And Jesus heard this. He said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor. You'll have treasures in heaven. Come follow me. And when the rich young ruler heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And I look at this story, it's kind of hard in our American, I'm, you know, I'm pro-business, I teach marketing and supply chain management to make companies more wealth. Um, and I look at this and I think, okay, so how do we process this? And of course, the Old Testament gives us great examples for how to walk it out, or how not to, half the time. Um, so we look at, I love, we look at Hezekiah, in Hezekiah 39, and Hezekiah is an amazing story. Hezekiah was in a really dark season. He had boils and a really bad disease. If you had boils and a bad disease and you were going to die soon, I think we would call that darkness, right? And so he cries out to God, and God heals him. You guys know this story? Not only does God heal him, but for some random reason, he holds all the stars in heaven in place in the process of healing him. This is an amazing miracle. And so God heals Hezekiah, and he's like, fine. He's like, great again, right? It's pretty miraculous. Most of us, this would probably transform our lives, and we'd live differently for the rest of our days. Um, and because God held the stars in place, some kings in the east. I love how the Bible you know, parrots Jesus coming over and over again. Some kings in the east saw that the stars stood still. And Babylon was known for its astrology and astronomers. And, and those kings in, the, in Babylon, they saw the stars stand still. So they, they went on this journey across, you know, what is today Saudi Arabia, to go to Israel to check out why did the heavens stand still. It's really weird that the sun and stars stood still. So they get to Hezekiah in Jerusalem, and they're like, what happened? So you know what Hezekiah does? doesn't tell him, my God held heaven still while he healed me. Nope. Hezekiah was pleased that they had come to see him. And Isaiah 39 says, he showed them all his treasure house. The silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, and all of his treasures. Like, what the heck? Hezekiah. When then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said, what did these men say? And where have they come to you? And from where? And Hezekiah said, they came to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, have they seen you in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house, and there is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, and some of your sons who will issue from you will beget, and they will be taken away, and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. David did the same thing. Do you know the reason David didn't get to build the temple wasn't because of Bathsheba? It was because David decreed a census. David went out and counted all of his riches, all of his soldiers, all of his army, and God said, Deuteronomy 17, David, I know you know it. I know you know it. Why are you counting up your treasures? You can't build my temple. So I want to challenge us today that I think Revelations 19 is our future. 
that Jesus is coming back for a glorious bride, a church that is clothed in light, that is clothed in royalty. I am the best person at feeling unworthy in the church and feeling un, um, unworthy and uh, not good enough. And God says, you've got to realize what I've done for you. You've got to see the darkness that I walk through with you and the light that I've drawn you into. Because when you get into the light and you realize that you're my daughter, your serving will be that much more powerful. So we need to know who we are as his kids, but we need to realize that when we lay it down, it shocks the world. It shocks the world. Um, I love this in Matthew 20. Jesus, he calls them together again, and this is the, the disciples arguing again. But Matthew, Matthew's the book that's written for the Hebrews, right? So it relies a lot more on the, the Israel text that all of the Jews know in the day. And Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. So we've heard this in Luke. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I love this phrase, Son of Man. It's Ben Adam. And so, you know, Adam, we think Adam, Ben is son of. And the term Ben Adam is used in the major and minor prophets. And Jesus uses the word son of man to set himself apart from all of the people running around in Jerusalem calling themselves messiahs. Because there were a lot of guys calling themselves messiahs. And Ben says, no, or Jesus, sorry. Jesus says, no, I am the Ben Adam. I am the son of man. And you know where the son of man showed up? The son of man shows up in Daniel. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't bow down to someone other than God, and King Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fire and says, there's three men in there, and one who looks like Ben-Adam, like the son of mankind. And this is how Jesus establishes himself as the king of kings, by laying down a royal throne in heaven and appearing miraculously as the son of humanity. This is so amazing. He showed us how to do it, how to come out of darkness with nothing but God on his wings into royalty so we could lay it down and be servants. I'm going to close with two final little things. When we look at the men in the Old Testament who maybe did this best, who maybe were the leaders that had no status, no wealth, but had such an amazing connection to God that no darkness could hold back the light of God's glory. And these two men were Joseph and Daniel. And I know Dan talked about Joseph last week, about coming out of darkness. But do you realize that Joseph and Daniel were the second-hand men? They had the signet rings of the kings. Joseph had the signet ring of Pharaoh. Daniel had the signet ring of both Nebuchadnezzar and Darius. And these two kings that these two men served had the greatest, largest nations in the world in their day. So basically, Joseph ruled the largest nation in the world, and Daniel ruled the largest nation in the world. Not as the king, but as someone God had lifted up. Not out of wealth and status, because they were both technically slaves, but because they had a connection 
that was unignorable. That they were anointed in a way that the kings of the world said, you're a slave, you're a servant, you have no wealth, but your connection to the king of kings makes me want to listen to you. So we don't have to have stuff and titles and degrees, even though I think they're really fun. We need a connection because that connection doesn't just set us apart. It, it is like our guide through darkness. It is the rod that walks with the Holy Spirit beside us. And when we get to the other side, it tells us who we are. It says, you're royal. You're royal and I'm coming back for you. Lay it down with me. Lay it down with me. So can I read a spoken word over you? Because I like to get awkward and do poetry at the end. Um, and this is a word that God actually spoke to me in this season of laying down things that I had built up for myself. And if we don't lay down the things that we think are our ministry, that we think define us, it's okay if we lay them down. Because if it's God's plan for our life, he's going to pick it back up, put it back on us. So it is time to wake up and acknowledge who you are. And if no one ever told you, let me be the one to say that you're no longer who you thought you were. You have a monogram on your shirt with initials that aren't yours, a brand that marks you as a royalty like visions in silks and furs. You have the world at your fingertips, but it's because he put it there and he speaks, then you exist. He is the light, the way, the word. What will you do with all he's given you? A mantle of strength, yet a yoke with an easy burden. Can I change the world, you ask? Not on your own strength, you can't. Not if you cling to your own name, but you can change the world, my friend. If you lay down your life, your worries, your fears, just as he laid down his throne and then his life for you. It will only require your life to take on the burden of his cross, a simple anthem instead of your own. It's his name. Instead, you shout. And when you cry out for recognition, point to him, not to yourself. That strength, it was never yours, my friend. Yet he gave you all he had. He said, you'll walk in all I've done, then more. That's a promise for you now. So take up the mantle and walk. He gives you your own crown. Just be sure to remember who you are before you put it on. Because you carry the hope of heaven. Laughter is your strength. And love is your secret. And when the world may crush you with worries and hatred and temptation, the reflection of your love will crumble all the pain that comes your way and you will set the striving free. It is time. It's time to change the world, my friend. If you can remember who you are, call yourself in his name. He's not ashamed of who you were. This love runs deep and far. So be a bride, be a soldier who gets their role who takes on royalty, not with paparazzi and cameramen, but with humility, grace, and charm. Command your kingdom in the name of the king and take 
the lands that are yours. And when the world comes crashing down, crush its grip with overwhelming love. Watch them flood in from afar to learn how it is done, how something so inspiring can come from such a humble one. A torrent of love that flows from you will change the landscapes where you walk. Hope springs, freedom rings, poor, sick, and needy are no more. And if in this might you're overwhelmed, lift your eyes to the hills above. Fix your thoughts on the lion, the lamb who reigns forever in love. I tell you again, I know, I know who you are. You are righteous, royal, redeemed, you're restored, and it is time to change the world. So Father God, right now, we respond and we thank you that you've never left us in darkness, God. That you are our light. That you've transformed us to be the light everywhere we go. But God, you didn't just ask us to serve, but you made it marvelous when we do. Maybe this is your marvelous light. How we love you, Father God. How we love you. How we love you.